1: Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. You know, I I can
2: see the faces uh, of our our Kurdish partners, um, our Syrian partners, even our Afghan partners as they see what, you know... Uh, uh, is nothing other than a a total betrayal. Um, And I think this will have a lot of ramifications uh, into the future as well because there will be other uh, conflicts where we're going to need our local partners. Our foreign partnerships remain a cornerstone of of our intelligence collection. You know, from our Five Eyes alliance that's with the UK, Canada, New Zealand and Australia, um, to our our allies in the Balkans or the Middle East, you know, we've really built a worldwide web of allies who cooperate together against, you know, the hardest of targets.
0: So they give us intelligence?
2: They do. And, and friendly services have, you know, taken down terrorist plots against Americans, have interdicted nuclear material. They've helped us catch spies in our midst and provided us critical intelligence on our hard targets like Russia, Iran, North Korea, and China. So, you know, they're really, they're indispensable and in its uh, personal relations. It's, a, it's just a, simply a critical part of the job.
0: Tucker Carlson accused CIA of wanting to remove President Trump from office and that it was actually acting to do so. The whistleblower was an example of that, he said. What I want to ask you, Mark, is in your 26 years of service, did you ever see any evidence of this narrative?
2: No, you know, uh, first of all, the answer is like a clear and equivocal no. I think it's a utterly, you know, absurd a- accusation. And it actually makes me sad because it goes against the fundamental principle or or fundamental premise of our role.
0: And to the extent that you might happen to know what somebody's personal political views are, did you ever see those views affect what that person did in the workplace?
2: I, I mean, I look back personally, did I agree with every foreign policy decision that was made? Of course not. Um, yet I deployed to multiple war zones. I joke with people, I have intelligence medals um, from operations in areas of the world in which I didn't personally uh, view our policy was correct. It didn't matter at all.
0: Mark Polymeropoulos was a CIA operations officer who served the agency for 26 years in a variety of overseas and headquarters assignments. Mark retired from the agency this past June and he agreed to join me on the podcast to talk about some of the narratives in the public domain about CIA and politics. We'll be right back after a quick break to hear from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Mark, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show.
2: Thank you very much. It's good to be here.
0: People need to know that you and I are friends and our families are friends. I think it's important for my listeners to know that. What it probably means for you, Mark, is that I probably need to be tougher on you than I am on most guests. So be prepared, pal. Not a problem. Okay. I actually want to start in a little bit different place than I had originally planned. And I know that you have spent some time in the Middle East, and I know that you have spent some time actually working with the Kurds in Iraq, which are a little bit different than the Kurds in Syria. But I really, Mark, wanted to get your reaction from someone who's actually been on the ground, have actually had to work with folks like the Kurds to advance American interests. I wanted to get your reaction to... uh, to what's happened the last couple of days, and to particularly what's happening today with the Turks rolling into northern Syria.
2: Uh, sure. Um, I, you know, I think uh, when, you know, I saw the news over the last several days of what, um, first, uh, what the administration uh, had decided, and then with the, with the over, I think, overnight, the Turkish incursion, you know, it's almost a, a punch to the gut um, for many of us who have uh, for, you know, at least for myself, for two decades um, served really on the front lines helping train uh, these indigenous forces. Um, it's a personal, uh, on a, it's on a personal level for me, because this is not, you know, talking about kind of geopolitics. This is face-to-face with allies, whether they're in Afghanistan, um, Iraq, or Syria, who really put all their faith uh, in, in the U.S. government, and even more particularly in those of us who are on the ground training them um, or working with them. And so, you know, I, I can see the faces uh, of, our, of our Kurdish partners, um, our Syrian partners, even our Afghan partners, as they see what you know, uh, uh, is nothing other than a, a total betrayal, um, and I think this will have a lot of ramifications uh, into the future as well, because there will be other con- uh, conflicts where we're going to need um, our local partners.
0: And they're now going to wonder whether they can trust us f- for the long term.
2: That's right, um, undoubtedly. And again, um, you know, the the I, I, I recall there was a there was a great uh, uh, Kurdish leader um, who you know this is over 20 years ago. We were living up in the mountains in Kurdistan, and I had given them are promises of, uh, of future American support. And I think, you know, the Kurds are a special lot because they've been betrayed uh, over the years by, uh, uh, by you know, everyone from the Iranians to the Israelis to Saddam. Um, but after my, my promises of a future, uh, you know, democratic Iraq, when we um, uh, rid the country of Saddam, you know, he took me aside and he said, look, you know, we're going to do this um, for ourselves. We need your support. Um But everything we do is not based on the American ideal. It really is going to be based on uh, on just your promise of support. Um, so I think you know even the Kurds who understood realpolitik very well um, you know this is a this is really a dark day uh, uh, for you know not only for the United States but for a lot of intelligence and special operations warriors who spend time in the front lines with these uh, with these forces
0: and I imagine you know going forward, whether you're in the intelligence community or whether you're in the military and you're having Conversations with indigenous forces somewhere else that we might want to support. That it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough to make the case, right? That we're going to be with you for the long term, and you're going to you're going to be able to count on the United States, right? It's going to be tough to keep a straight face and say that.
2: That's right. And uh, you know, the Middle East is a small uh, a small area, so everyone is going to look back, uh, kind of, on what's occurred over the last. Um, several hours and days and this is really gonna hurt us uh, into the future again This is from the ground level to me. It was a punch in the gut I think there's a lot of Intelligence officers and special operations officers who are uh, who are having some sleepless nights because they're looking at the faces of the individuals that we have uh, We have betrayed
0: mark, this is This is the first interview that you've done ever You retired from the agency this summer earlier this summer You've done some writing You've shared your thoughts with the public on several different issues. One of those is what we're gonna talk about at length, which is, you know, how does politics affect CIA and is CIA political? So I, I really wanna get into that discussion. But this being your first interview and the fact that you've written a handful of things, why did you decide to share your views publicly after a life in the clandestine service?
2: Sure. Well, you know, after, after 26 years really all spent, you know, in the shadows, I think I wanted to come and give context um, to the American people about the organization that I really so deeply um, believe in. That was not just my job, but it was, you know, it was a calling. It was my passion. You know, I think the, the CIA has a soul, you know, it has a culture, um, and there's so much good that we do. So, you know, quite simply, I just wanted to write and talk about it.
0: So, Mark, before we get into the discussion of Politics and CIA. Let me ask you a few questions about your career. You started at the agency in 1993. How did you end up there?
2: Sure. Well, you know, I I grew up in New Jersey, just really uh, a regular middle-class kid. You know, listening to Bon Jovi and Springsteen and going to the (laughs) Jersey Shore. Um, I think you'd actually be surprised how many uh, New Jerseyites are are at CIA. I think uh, former Director John Brennan as well. Yes, um, is one, but. Really, two things led me to CIA and, you know, this is, this is just, you know, kind of on a personal level. One was I read James Michener's book, Caravans, mm. which was about a young foreign service officer uh, in Afghanistan. And I was mesmerized by this, you know, Lawrence of Arabia type story. And then the second one, which, is, which was really memorable, was a trip. My father, who was a college professor, he was teaching in Algeria. So my father and his best friend and I, um, when I was 10 years old, we drove 1,000 miles through the Sahara Desert in Algeria in a Volkswagen minibus. And so I became completely hooked um, wow. on uh, on the Middle East then. And after after undergrad and grad school at, at Cornell, I was really hired into the only job I've ever had.
0: You know, this reminds me of a conversation I had with somebody who's undercover, but somebody you know well, somebody who was the head of the Counterterrorism Center when I was the deputy director. And he told me that one weekend he had gone to graduation for a relative of his and how he went to the graduation and was talking with all the kids and how disappointed he was. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I asked them about their overseas experience, and they told me about London and Rome <laughs> and Paris. And right. I, what I wanted to hear is somebody who had hiked their way across Africa. That's right. That's what I wanted to hear. Yeah. So uh, sounds like you got that right. So, Mark, you started as an analyst, right? You did that for four years. Um, then you switched operations, what made you make that change?
2: That's right. Well, so uh, it started is,
0: in my my side of the agency. I
2: did. And it's a it's a really interesting story um, because actually, uh, so many of my first experiences on the analytics side shaped my um, shaped the operational side of my career later on. But I'll start. You know, I started in 1993 on the on the Afghan desk, and interestingly, we had uh, begun tracking a young supporter of the worldwide Islamic um, terrorist movement, a man called Osama bin Laden, mm-hmm. and I actually um, co-authored one of the first papers. Uh, ever written on these Afghan war veterans. And then even in the in the third week of my analyst training, the third week when I was on the job at, at CIA, um, that's when uh, Mir Amil Khanzi killed several of our colleagues mm. uh, outside the front gate. January of 93. January of 93. Um, and so, uh, you know, even as an analyst, you know, these were signs of what I would spend really the majority of my career on. But as for my analytic career, um, I think I, in 1995, after a, a TDY, a temporary duty assignment, on a trip to the Middle East, I decided I wanted to switch tracks. Um, And I came back and I I talked to my group chief, um, someone who I think you know very well. He was John Brennan. Um, And I I went into his office and I said, I'd like to become uh, a case officer. And and very quickly, and in retrospect, too quickly, um, he he agreed. It would be a great idea to switch tracks. So I think looking back, that was clear. Maybe I was not the uh, crack analyst that I thought I was. But off I went into, uh, into the DO. And then much later on when um, when John was uh, the director and I was in a field management role in the Middle East, I reminded him of this story, and we laughed. And, it's, it's, you know, in truth, he kept me in the agency, so um, that, was a, that was a good you thing. Would
0: have, you would have made a great analyst. I'm, <laughs> I'm absolutely certain of that. So, Mark, what can you tell us, in an unclassified setting here, we've got to keep reminding people of that, about the training program that operations officers go through?
2: Sure, you know, and I think in a nutshell, it's it's very close to the reality of of work and life um, in the field. It is that good. Um, It's a lot about time management. Um, It's about testing yourself and your ability to operate alone. Uh, And it's really it's not for everyone. You know, people do fail, and that's okay. You know, there is a washout rate. Um,
0: So it's not like five year old soccer where everybody gets a trophy at the end.
2: No, everyone does not get a trophy in the end. And look, in, in the end, you have to. Be able to master the core skills of a case officer um, which is how to you know detect surveillance how to handle agents with uh, you know top-notch tradecraft and then of course the the core business of spotting assessing developing and, uh, and recruiting um, I think I would often Marvel even years later with real-world operations and I look back and I and I would say that you know what I really what I learned in my training was spot-on
0: so mark what is it like to recruit another human being to spy for the United States
2: that's a, Michael, that's a, that's a great question. I love that question because it, it goes to the heart of why I really loved um, the job as a case officer. Because you know, ultimately it's about, I think, the most basic of human personal relationships. I mean, I I've, I've call it a romance and then it's a marriage. You know, it's, a, it's, it's ultimately about getting close enough to another human being that you're able to assess uh, uh, their motivation to a point um, where you garner their agreement to betray their country. And that's really, that's an incredibly intimate relationship. Um, And in the end, you're looking at someone uh, who says to you, I'm going to put my life uh, in your hands. Um, Can you, you know, think about that as a responsibility of a young officer? Um, There's probably no other job like that, you know, in the USG or even anywhere.
0: So once they say yes, you really have two jobs, right? One is to acquire the intelligence that they have access to, and the other is to keep them safe. Yes, right and that is a that's a huge responsibility that the agency takes extraordinarily seriously
2: and and you have that responsibility at a very young age
0: and then on the flip side right the flip side is the importance of keeping our officers our operations officers our case officers who are interacting with these assets safe and you had an experience where somebody who worked for you was actually killed by someone that we thought was an asset. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: That's right. I think, uh, you know, this was what, you know, every day you hoped and prayed would, would never happen. Um, you know, I'll never forget standing in front of several hundred officers at a, at a, at a station um, and announcing the death of our colleague. And, you know, to many, it was a, it was a great friend. You know, this was a truly awful experience. And I can still hear that, you know, the howls of one officer when she heard the news. Um, it, was, it was absolutely, you know, gut-wrenching. I can't even recall frankly what i said um that day uh, uh i just i remember taking the initial phone call um that our officer had been killed and immediately calling in all hands i actually I, I saw my wife at the embassy as well and to this day she said she had never seen such a look on my face she knew something was uh was wrong and it you know i'll tell you even today i have intense feelings of uh of guilt for what occurred because you know ultimately i was i was in charge and i've about a billion times gone through my mind how you know i personally failed um, you know Years later, when I received my promotion to the senior intelligence service ranks, I, I really my first thought was that I I did not deserve that, um, as that I had lost someone under my command. Um, now, you know, I obviously have intense feelings of what occurred. So you try to take these feelings and kind of impart this on to the next generation of agency leaders, because you know in our work um, this unfortunately does happen, and you have to be prepared for it. Um, I, I'll I'll kind of finish this with you know one day I was I was having dinner with uh, Deputy Sencom Commander. And I kind of, I told him of my struggles um, coming to terms with the death of one officer. And he responded that, you know, he really dealt with this on an industrial scale. And so that was really sobering. And it's, you know, it's just, it's a tough business.
0: So let's switch and talk about politics in the CIA. But I think in order to set the predicate for that, I need you to ask, I need to ask you a couple things. So as an operations officer, you broadly did three things, right? You recruited spies. You built and maintained liaison relationships with foreign intelligence services, and you helped conduct covert action. Let's set the last one aside because okay. we probably shouldn't talk about that. Right. But talk for a minute about the importance of recruitment operations to national security. Sure. Look, you know,
2: you know, there's there's no substitute in my mind for you know what is in essence a human spy. A human spy. So you know for for a. A penetration of a terrorist group who could you know, provide information um, on plots to attack Americans to a penetration of a prime minister's office um, of a country who's negotiating a trade deal with us um, or, uh, or you know, penetration of a, of a hostile nuclear program. Um, you know, these are operations that could inform us um, of the most detailed plans of our adversaries. You know, It's obviously one element of the intelligence picture. There's signals intelligence as well as where we're listening on the communications of our allies. But, you know, in my view, um, and this, I kind of go back to the bottom line in dealing with a human human spy, you know, these are someone who can provide us ground truth, um, can maybe provide us documents, can answer our tasking, it's an interactive relationship, um, and that's really unmatched.
0: Yeah, that's what, it, it's that ability to go back and ask questions, right. right? Follow up. You know, what did you mean by that? What did you mean by this? Can you answer that question? Can you answer this question? that really, I think, sets it apart from the other ints, from the other That's right. collection systems, right? Those can't do that, right. but a human source can. Did you, when you were in the field running assets and then managing case officers who were running assets, did you see the impact of your work?
2: Oh, I mean, it's, you know, I, I think we can have extraordinary impact. And, you know, I, so I, I, even in my, you know, in the later stages of my career when I had, you know, senior operational leadership positions um, in several of the mission centers, you know, I would go back and I would kind of tell the following to people, that I would recall five or six times um, uh, in my career where the front page stories in the Washington Post or, or New York Times were the results of our operational work. Um, you know, of, of course, no mention of CIA, but, you know, that feeling that you were a part of history, um, that, you know, perhaps you helped shape history, As a, and I'm not exaggerating on that. That's really, that's unmatched. Um, I can even, I can give a, a example of an impact that was, you know, not geopolitical in nature. Um, more personal, though, is that in, in South Asia where I was, Uh, managing one of our our bases. Um, We were tracking a terrorist target, and uh, uh, this terrorist target had killed one of our officers several years prior, and this target was still continuing to plan uh, operations against Americans. Um, So we put agents on the ground, recruited agents on the ground, and over over months worked against this target where we finally had him on the X. um, We We finally located him. We located him, um, and we called in an airstrike, and, and we killed the terrorist. And on the impact of that, you know, I'll say that later that night, this is from 10,000 miles away, um, we called our officer's widow, who was all the way back in the United States, and, uh, and she thanked us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that remains a, a really proud moment of my time in, uh, in CIA, and, you know, to me, it's certainly operational impact.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Mark.
1: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: Okay, Mark, now talk about the importance to the United States of America, right, of our relationships, CIA's relationships with foreign intelligence services. Sure,
2: and I think this is something that's not often really talked enough about in our line of business. Um, but really, our, our foreign partnerships remain a cornerstone of, of our intelligence collection. You know, from our Five Eyes um, alliance that's with the UK, Canada, you know, New Zealand, and Australia, um, to our, you know, our allies in the Balkans or the Middle East, um, you know, we've really built a worldwide web of allies who cooperate, and we cooperate together against, you know, the hardest of targets. So
0: they give us intelligence.
2: They do. And, and friendly services have, you know, taken down terrorist plots against Americans, have interdicted nuclear material. They've helped us catch spies in our midst and, and you know, provided us critical intelligence on our hard targets like Russia, Iran, um, North Korea, and China. So, you know, they're really, they're indispensable. And it, as, as operational managers in the field and headquarters, we spend a huge amount of time Um, nurturing these relationships and again it's it goes back to what I talked about before in terms of recruitment operations this is different but there's an art to liaison operations as well because again it's all human contact and it's a it's a personal relations um, and it's a it's just simply a critical part of the job
0: okay so with that as background now we're gonna get to the political discussion and maybe the way to do this mark is for me to lay out some of the narratives that are in the public domain about cia sure. cia and politics and the influence of politics on cia so i think the first narrative is that the agency has a political agenda that the agency plays in domestic politics here in the united states mm-hmm. that it wants to influence politics here in the united states in fact tucker carlson um, a fox news commentator accused cia of wanting to remove president trump from office and that it was actually acting to do so the whistleblower was an example of that he said what i want to ask you mark is in your 26 years of service did you ever see any evidence of this narrative
2: no you know uh, first of all the answer is a clear and unequivocal no and you know it's a, a you know i see this in the press and you asked previously why I wanted to speak out. And so, you know, this is one of the reasons to address questions like this because I think it's a utterly, you know, absurd a- accusation. And it actually makes me sad because it goes against the fundamental principle or the fundamental premise of our role, which was to protect uh, uh, the American people. So to me, that narrative is, is really deeply um, insulting, but I suppose it does need to, to, to be addressed.
0: Yeah, in fact, um, somebody who I know, somebody who I grew up with actually called me after the Tucker Carlson thing and said, does the CIA really do that? Right. So these narratives matter. So it matters that people who have worked there and have worked there recently, right. like you did, can can speak out and say, it's not true. It's not true at all. Okay, so there's another narrative out there, right? Let me back up a minute. So this doesn't mean that agency officers don't have their own personal political of views, course. right? Of course they do. Do people talk about them in the workplace?
2: So you know, or you know, ordinarily no. We're too busy. I mean, that's kind of the you know what I tell people. Um, and you know, when I when I was at CIA, we don't even have access to Twitter inside the building. Right. I mean, perhaps you know, on uh, you know the operations uh, uh, center does, but um, we didn't follow the tweets. We didn't follow what was happening. We're just you know we're, we're too busy in the end. Um, you know, there, there are, but but of course I have close friends in the agency. You know, uh, a select few who I would socialize on the on the side. And do I know their politics? Maybe a little bit. But I can also tell you, I couldn't if 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 we named um, twenty CIA officers that I work closely with, uh, uh, other than maybe some of my close friends, I, I have no idea who they even even voted for. Um I think you know what we did pay attention to, and this is because it was part of our job. So for example, in a congressional election, um you know the oversight committee members may change. Well, that's a big deal to us because we do have a lot of uh, uh, dealings with oversight. so that is of interest. who's who is now going to be on uh, hipsey or or, uh, or or sissy? But again, at the end of the day, um, talking politics in the workplace is not a, a prime, uh, job duty of an organization that is designed to protect America.
0: And to the extent that you might happen to know what somebody's personal political views are, did you ever see those views affect what that person did in the workplace or decisions that that person made about their responsibilities?
2: No, uh, you know. Again, it's uh, first of all the answer is no, and uh, and it's again a question I find it's almost amazing that that we have to address this. I mean, I look back personally, did I agree with every foreign policy decision that was made? Of course not. Um, yet I deployed to multiple war zones, carried at the best of my duties, my my, uh, my abilities, my operational duties. Um, you know, I, I joke with people, I have intelligence medals um, from operations in areas of the world in which I didn't personally uh, view our policy was correct. It didn't matter at all.
0: So, Mark, one of the other narratives that is out there is that because of the president's decisions because of his behavior because of his critique of our allies because of his embracing of some of our adversaries and I could go on and on here right. that he has made he's personally made the job of agency officers harder did you see anything on in either terms of recruitment operations or in terms of our relationships with foreign intelligence services, which is why I wanted to talk about those earlier, sure. that would be evidence of that narrative?
2: So, so look, I think that's this is actually a really useful narrative to ponder, and I've thought a lot about this, um, because it would be very easy for us to say, you know, yes, because of the president's unorthodox style, you know, he's a disruptor for the international world order, um, uh, you know, the, the tweets sometimes insulting foreign leaders, etc. Um, But really, upon close analysis, you know, to me, that just that just does not fly. And that's a really good thing. So, you know, in terms of of recruitments, um, no, I I mean, I don't think it has made our job uh, of recruiting foreign assets uh, uh, more difficult because, you know, as I as I kind of consider what uh, uh, what are the factors in which a a foreign official would uh, uh, would decide to spy for the United States? You know, these are all really personal motivations um, whether it's, you know, individual needs based on, you know, financial need for, you know, a sick relative or, or education for their children, um, or maybe dissatisfaction in the workplace, they're a minority, um, uh, a religious minority in a, in a country where there is a glass ceiling, um, or maybe they've been passed over for promotion. But none of these have to do with whether or not, uh, you know, uh, uh, President Trump has um, has made a, a tweet or has, you know, insulted another foreign leader or disrupted the world order. I think, you know, again, it's a uh, recruiting assets is a very personal decision um, for the agent to to say yes. And so I don't think um, there has been an effect. In terms of liaison, you know, this is where... um, Relationships
0: with foreign intelligence services.
2: uh, I'm sorry. So, yes. So liaison is our, our, you know, well-established relationship with foreign services over, you know, uh, over the entire globe. And look, liaison is very well attuned to American politics, probably more so than we are. Um, They're very smart. And so, look, in in my assignments uh, after the elections in 2016, um, I was obliged to spend really a significant amount of time with uh, senior foreign intelligence service officials who were, you know, they were curiously assessing uh, us, this, us and, <laughs> sure. and the new president and his style. And, and you know, they were under some pressure from their masters as well. Um, and they'd be asked at times, you know, maybe to brace us about something that that the, uh, the White House had, had put forward. Um, but look, we, we dealt with this very professionally. Um, and I believe correctly by just we would note that we were all uh, uh, intelligent professionals, that it was best to ignore the politics um and then focus on our arena which is you know really building and even strengthening the the bilateral ties um between the respective services and you know there's a uh, i look back there is tremendous historic precedent for this so i think in one of uh uh, cia's finest hours in the middle east was our link to the jordanian security services but this was years ago this was to jordanian um, then king hussein if you recall after the saddam invaded kuwait the u.s and jordan Right. Essentially severed bilateral ties. The king supported the Iraqis. He did. Um but the CIA maintained the ties to the Jordanians um and was the kind of the sole entity that was able to kind of rebuild the entire bilateral relationship. And look at today, you know, Jordan is one of our indispensable allies. So uh just to go back to the original question, no, I think um uh, our work with liaison under this White House is, uh, has flourished. No, I, I will note I you know, I think it's a it's a question if one asked to Um, senior uh, FBI or or Department of State officials, they may have a different answer. Those are organizations that I think have had a
0: bit of a tougher time than, than we are. So, Mark, maybe one more thought just to underscore what you said about liaison relationships is, in my experience, they not only survive tough political times, but they become the bedrock on which you rebuild a political relationship down the road, which I think is exactly what happened with Jordan. Right. I think... CIA's relationships with other countries is going to be really important here going forward.
2: That's right. I agree.
0: So, one more narrative, Mark, that's out there, and that is that unlike the Bush and Obama administrations, this one, the Trump administration, particularly the president himself, has little interest in intelligence, is not paying attention, has little interest in what the agency has to say. Is that narrative? accurate? No, I
2: actually, I think it's not, not accurate at all. Um, and, and I think, first of all, you have to separate, um, you know, when you know the administration from the president himself. Um, so, uh, you know, in my time under this current White House, and again, I retired in June of this year, there was a huge appetite for intelligence. Um, the National Security Council, for example, were voracious consumers, the various national security advisors we've gone through. Um, uh, and I think, you know, a perfect example of this was the U.S. government's response um, to the brazen Russian attempts to kill Sergei Skripal in the U.K. in, uh, in March of 2018. Um, there was there was a, a well-coordinated and really well-executed US, USG response led by the CIA, um, working through the White House. Um, and it really was a textbook example of the administration turning to the CIA um, to really kind of put the screws on the Russians. So this was a, a shining moment. And that, to me, is not an example at all of an administration. And if I remember correctly, the president
0: didn't want, didn't want to take action,
2: right? And, that's and was, where, was you know, ultimately
0: talked into it right. by his, his senior advisors.
2: Um, you know, look, I cannot comment on President Trump himself. And, uh, you know, I'm not a member, uh, nor was I part of the briefing team. Yeah, that's, a, that's a separate subject. But I'll, look, I'll note there is historic precedent for presidents to have a less than stellar um, desire for briefings. You know, there's a, a famous Washington, you know, vignette. Um, if you recall, uh, many years ago during the Clinton administration, there was a small plane that crashed on the White House lawn um, and the joke at that time was that then uh, DCIA James Woolsey um, was trying to get in to see President Clinton, who wasn't taking his PDB ever, his presidential uh, daily brief. And, you know, Woolsey would tell that joke himself. Um, so my point on that is let's not judge the administration and uh, their interest in intelligence you know, just, just by what we hear about, you know, only the president.
0: So in your experience over the last few years, Secretary of State's interest in intelligence? That's correct. Hi.
2: Um I I you know I think uh uh it probably uh, uh was a bit different under Secretary of State um, Tillerson he had a unique management style But Pompeo? Um Pompeo for sure. Um who you know got to know our building right. um uh, very well and and uh you know was an avid consumer when he was our director and Secretary of
0: Defense Chairman of the Joint
2: Chiefs Absolutely. Um our our counterparts at uh, DOD were uh,
0: uh enormously interested. Um you know
2: primarily because of of all the hotspots around the world.
0: So with all this um with all of these narratives out there, right, CIA officers can't help to read about this stuff in the sure. paper, right? How would you assess the morale at CIA, you know, given all this, the fluidity of all the politics and its, the way it's swirling around?
2: Sure. Look, you know, and as a, as a senior leader when I left, you know, I was hyper attuned to this um, because this is kind of the, you know, the health of our organization. But I'll, you know, my conclusion again, and this is despite kind of the political storm in Washington, the morale was very high. Um, you know, there are young men and women um, who want to serve their country really in a unique line of work. Um, I think you know one of the key points that we stress, and which is true, is that the CIA today has uh, you know sufficient resources to uh, to do our job and enjoys significant support in the hill for our uh, for our activities. And that's not always the case. Um, so we have to really focus on that. And I think our officers know that. Um it's a place where you know diversity and inclusion is practiced, and this is really important. You know, back to the kind of the, the kind of the political side of the question, it, it, you know, CIA officers are always are, are kind of always cranky. So I think morale is high, but we're particularly always cranky.
0: analysts, if I remember correctly. And then look, you know, <laughs> if,
2: if you remember under President Obama, and uh, uh, you were of course there at the time, look, the National Security Council was a really bloated um, and times, you know, stultifying uh, uh, entity, and we complained all the time about a lack of timely decision making. So I would think is you know I'd say morale is high, and CIA officers remain you know appropriately cranky.
0: Mark, did you, as a senior leader, have to talk to your troops about all of this?
2: So, you know, I think it would be negligent if we did not. So the answer is yes. And so, you know, in my last job, um, I would meet and greet every officer from every career track in our mission center, um, whether it be a support officer, operations officer, Targeting officer and analyst.
0: Um, you had all these people working into. for you in this new reorganization yes. that John Brennan put in
2: place. That's right. Um, and uh, and in their orientations, I would make sure and come and kind of address that you know that giant elephant in the room. And I would look. I would simply say to ignore the politics, um, and uh, and just you know uh, put your head down and get to work. Um, and I think that really did work uh, because uh, uh, you know at the end of the day, I go back to the morale. People um, came to the come to the agency really for the right reasons, and they were. You know, they they looked at the front page. You know, my last job was uh, running operations in Europe and uh, and uh, and Russia. Um, if you can't get motivated every day to come to work after what the Russians did to us in 2016, you know, it's probably a wrong line of work for you.
0: Right. right. So, Mark, just a, a couple of more questions here. What are the things that you're going to miss oh, sure. about going to work every day at the agency?
2: So, you know, I, I look back on, on kind of several moments that I, I think about all the time, you know, and... Both, you know, uh, in the field and at headquarters. But, you know, I, I recall walking from my apartment um, in a in a Middle Eastern capital. You know, it was a place we were under heavy scrutiny um, from a hostile intelligence service. You know, leading a small group of men and women at a at a, at a station, walking up to the embassy at night, um, and you know, you see the American flag under that spotlight, and that to me was was inspiring. Not only for you know officers at the embassy and 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 the station, but also. You know, many in the host country who believed in the American ideal. You know, I get still get goosebumps about those days. Um, and and you know, I talked about uh, uh, before my feelings of you know CIA being uh, a family. You know, when I was in in Afghanistan, my mom died, um, and uh, and I was serving on a frontline base along the Pak Afghan border, and you know, I returned to the United States to New Jersey. Was going to take multiple helicopter flights and fixed wing flights to 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 make it home for the funeral. Yet our and our, our helicopter pilots. Um, who are you know military veterans from the special operations community and probably the most accomplished on the planet, you know they flew me through terrible weather mm. um, uh, to get back home and I, I remember being on the headset in the helicopter telling them to turn around you know we were in a in a you know narrow mountain pass, and the uh, uh, the weather was terrible, and I was worried about the safety of the air crew as well and when we finally got to the base and we landed, you know they said, "Look, we did this for you, you know we know what happened to your mom um wow. and uh, and so you know i mean to me you know how do you not have incredible loyalty to an organization that has men and women like that? And, you know, CIA to me is a family. I think it has a, a soul, you know, it has a beating heart. Um, you know, I never had a boring day in 26 years. And so uh, I was I was really lucky to be a part of that. So I'm sure I will, I will certainly miss it.
0: Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That was Mark Polymeropoulos. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
1: This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio.